0: Welcome to Top of Mind, the show where we talk to real estate industry insiders and experts about the biggest trends impacting the market
1: today. Enjoy the show. Mike Simonson here. Thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the Top of Mind podcast. This is where I talk to the smartest leaders, thinkers, doers in the real estate industry. We like to go beyond the, the data that it, that and dive into the context and the views and the opinions. You know, at Altos Research, we track every home for sale in the country. We track all the supply and the demand and all the pricing and the changes in that data. And most of our work is analyzing the data and presenting it out. The Top of Mind podcast is where we get perspective and context. And so what we're going to do today is talk with Allie Wolfe from Zonda. Ali is the chief economist for Zonda, the the largest home-building prop tech company in North America. As head of the economics department, Ali manages and analyzes all the content for Zonda, runs special research projects, strategizes with the nation's largest home-builders, and presents nationwide, covering topics across the housing market and the wider economy. Ali is also the creator of Zonda's proprietary indexes, including the New Home pending sales index and the new home lot supply index. And these are important because Allie's skills and the work at Zonda is actually very complementary to the work we do at Altos Research, where we're looking at, at the existing stock and the homes listed for sale. Allie's looking at the new construction and the trends in adding to that stock. So we're going to geek out on some data today. And we're going to dive in and and see if we can get some perspective on the market right now in the coming years. So welcome, Allie Wolf.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. And it's fun because I feel like I know you from Twitter. We're Twitter friends.
1: We're Twitter friends.
0: it's nice to actually connect uh, on this podcast as well. Thank you for having me.
1: I really appreciate it. So let's start off. Tell us about Zonda.
0: Yeah, so Zonda, it's really actually a fun backstory where Zonda right now, like you mentioned in the introduction, we're the largest home building prop tech company across the country. And we came about because there were two competing companies. And it's interesting that we would even call each other competitors because we had completely different data sets. So there was this, this company that was called Metro Study and there was this company called Myers Research. And Metro Study had all of this lot data across the country. They had people literally driving cars, going to air, to different developments and saying, there's a bulldozer there. There's a stake in the ground. And they would classify it as such. What Myers Research had, and that's the, the part of the merger that I came from, Myers Research was, I always say it was the demand side. I don't think the rest of the company would actually say that, but what we would track is the actively selling communities. And we could tell you, where are the best actively selling communities who are the builders what are the best price points and those two companies came together we now track the entire building life cycle so as you mentioned mike we track the entire new home side from raw land all the way up to the closing out of a new home community
1: and um this is a big day so it's uh middle of december we just had the new home construction numbers so we're going to talk about those today because That's like the headline, interesting stuff going on there. Lots of implications too. So I can't wait to get your take on that. How did you get into housing data?
0: Oh gosh, I I will try to keep that short. I think I always knew I liked economics and always knew as of, you know, the, the first class I took, it was like, this is my, this is my field. I love it. And I had planned on... Going into law school, I think just because what I had heard is that if you get a degree in economics, you need to apply it to something. And at that point, I didn't really know what that application was. So just law school made sense. And I think by by some kind of divine intervention or something, someone talked me out of that. I ended up not going that route. And thank goodness, because that's not, right? That's, that's not my personality. I wouldn't have liked it. And it was my senior year of undergrad. I happened to take a housing economics class. And of course, I had seen my parents buy and sell homes you know all that stuff but i never studied interest rates and affordability and inventory and uh, policy and and that really i had already gotten into a, a grad program for a completely different degree it was international political economy moved out to london out in the uk and switched my degree the first week i was like i need to be in i need to be in housing economics i need to be focused on that and so it was a bunch of weird twists and turns, you know the 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 best laid plans, twists and turns, and here I am.
1: Amazing. So you actually in in undergrad you recognized housing economics as the narrow niche that you were interested in.
0: It's it's an embarrassing story in that I used to go to Barnes and Noble and go to their economics section, and I would just pick out books like just what book should I read? And I was going on vacation, and I happened to pick up a book called The Housing Boom. And I brought that on vacation with me. And my, my day you get the syllabus, your senior year um, at that housing economics class, the textbook for that class was the housing boom and bust. And I was like, Oh, like <laughs> I've already read that book. I read that on vacation. And so I think the professor from that day on liked me. And I'm sure that didn't, that didn't hurt that you just felt like, you know, invested in the class because of that too.
1: That's amazing. That's really fascinating. My journey is actually a real personal one. Like I bought, my little tiny little overpriced piece of shit silicon valley house in 19 in 2001 that was two bubbles ago i like to say and uh and so like i was analyzing for my own self and it's actually kind of one of the things that the reasons that i'm so excited to have you on the call today is because you know i'm a middle of san francisco i'm a you know so it's it is bay area housing market it you know these are 50 or 70 year old homes and there's nothing on the market like it's it's a real peculiar market in the world new construction to me personally is super foreign it's like you know it's the middle of texas i'm like i have no idea about what that what that world is like and and so so you know where where we when we built the altos products like we're we're focusing on resale and and Mm -hmm. that that existing home market and it never occurred to me at the time to even Think about new construction and what that has. So, so I like, okay, so let's dive in and get some geeky on. So, and I'm also, by the way, interested in, in the Zonda approach to data. You guys do a lot of surveys. Like you, you call a bunch of people to, to get your data. Is that correct? Like to, to get some analysis. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's, we do so many different ways to collect data. So one is, yes, we have a dedicated research team that's picking up the phone and calling new home communities. They have, you know, let's just say one researcher has 300 communities that they're in charge of every month they have to call. And so they have the relationships with the salespeople. They check in with them every month. And like I said, we still actually have people that are driving the different sites and we have satellite imagery. So we're able to track Based on, we've, we've taught the satellites, or I guess the, the, the back end of that, we've taught them to say, hey, that's a platted lot. That's going through a different stage of development. So we've taught them to actually be more efficient than what a human would be. And then we supplement all of that with a monthly division president survey. So there's a lot of different ways that we're collecting data.
1: Yeah, the division presidents are the people who are over like a whole metro area.
0: That's exactly it. Constructing
1: yep. new metro. And then who, who, are, your, who are your customers?
0: So our clients will be builders, developers, private equity, hedge funds. Uh, Those will be the paid ones. And then, of course, we are constantly talking to um, policymakers, to press, to just talk about the state of the market as well.
1: That's terrific. Okay. That's an excellent background there. So uh, we call the podcast Top of Mind. What is, it's now December 2021. It's been two nuts years in the housing market what's top of mind for you right now
0: so two things and then you can decide which of those two you want to go with the first is lots and i know you mentioned the lot supply index i know i've mentioned a few times how we track lot data but the reason that's so important is you've you've already mentioned that the data came out this morning for starts and permits i don't know how anyone can forecast the housing market without knowing what's happening with lots not not all not your side of the market the new home side of the market yeah. you have to know are there lots for builders to build on. So that would be one of the the critical things that we're paying attention to and then the second would be every year for the past I can't remember if it's 5 or 6 years we've been doing a millennial survey. And I just launched my millennial survey, I think it was a week or two ago and we have really cool insights that are coming out of that. I have 500 respondents so obviously we're not at full we're not there yet of having our, our sample size that we want, but there's still some kind of early signs in there that I think are fascinating
1: okay so this is we get all kinds of going so let's start with the lots so lots coming out of the the bubble burst home builders shed a bunch of lots to keep their cash what's happened in the last decade and what's the the index telling us right now
0: oh my gosh so yeah so i guess going back and we'll do the history really fast is That last cycle, it just felt like the demand was going to go on forever and you could just keep moving further away and you could keep absorbing those lots and developing those lots and there will be people to buy those homes. As you mentioned, there was a point that that didn't happen. And so some of those lots became what we call zombie lots, where you had lots out there and a builder would have them and they wanted to get them off their books or they had to sit with them, whatever it was. There was this, this buildup of inventory that over the past 10 years, probably 15 years at this point. Builders have been kind of working through that inventory, maybe going back to the city and saying, "We originally planned this. Remember, McMansions were popular way back when. They're not as popular today, even though I think a lot of people still think that's all builders are building, which is not the case." So they would go back to the city and say, "Hey, can we do this different? Can we do a more dense community? Can we try to adjust the product type?" And so that's one of the the big things that that changed. And over the years, again, builders were absorbing it. Where we are now starting in probably June of last year so that would be June of 2020, there was this mad dash to absorb lots and to get lots and to get ready. And this was after every builder pausing in March and April and saying, wait, never mind, this is this is another housing bus. we don't want to be involved and then realizing the market's going crazy. So our lot supply index right now shows that vacant developed lots, and so that means a lot that builder could go by tomorrow and start going vertical on a home. They can develop lots is at an all-time low. So it, it means that available lots are very constrained, but builders have been buying lots. The reason it's at an all-time low is because they've been purchased. So that's how you can support some of the building that we're seeing is because anything that was available in any kind of decent location, builders are trying to now bring to the market.
1: Wow. Okay. So. And, and as we know with the, the permits numbers announced today, we have the most new construction homes ever that have been, or ever in whatever, 40 years or something like that, that have been under construction or maybe 50 years. Like that, that are in, in that construction process, correct? And that's really these, like all the lots have been bought up and they're somewhere in that process. Uh, we've had all the supply delays, so they're not, they're starting more and they're not finishing right yes. what what's the implications what are we looking at there does that mean uh because like i hear a lot of housing market bears who look at that and say there's there are record high numbers of homes in the middle of construction therefore there's a giant wave of new supply going to happen how how should we look at that
0: so uh, in a lot of cases so there's two different ways to look at it and i i don't agree with that bear analysis just to to set the tone um, the first way is that in a lot of cases, those homes that are being built already have a buyer attached to them. And what's happening is they're not getting the windows, they're not getting the refrigerators, they're not getting the garage doors. And so what should have taken X amount of months is now taking Y amount of months and that's stretching it out, which means more homes are getting stuck in, the, in that under construction phase longer than they normally would. The second way to look at that is that builders have realized we could sell more homes if we had more homes to sell. And so they're trying to do more spec homes, which going back to the past, spec homes got builders in a lot of trouble during the mid 2000s housing boom. So they stopped. Now you want to do spec homes if you're a builder, because you can guarantee that that home is going to be built. You can decide, okay, we're going to, there can be more efficient building processes, because then you're going to say, we're going to have all of these windows of this size. And we need you to guarantee that we're going to get those windows instead of Mike picking one window size, Allie picking another window size, you know, all these different customizations that will hold back the, the production of homes. So I, I would say that's not an, a sign of, of overbuilding. It's a sign of a strategy shift, and it's a sign of the, the times because of the supply chain problem.
1: Interesting. Okay, so it was like homes went from four months, and now all of a sudden they're looking at 14 months or something to complete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're building up there. Okay, and and so the strategy shift is something I hadn't uh, considered. And that's like builder strategy,
0: mm-hmm.
1: less custom, more mm-hmm. standard. Yes. And yeah. interesting. And uh, and so in in some senses, like that's maybe means that the builders, while they're sitting on all this stuff trying to get it done, they're actually in a stronger position than they then they, uh, they're they gambling less? There are less spec homes happening. Is that what's going on? Like, is that an the indication builders, of like financial strength?
0: I would say it gives builders a little bit more certainty. So so one, let me step back. One thing that changed and not every builder did this, but there was this thing that was introduced in, I think at the beginning of this year, so 2021, that was called a kickout clause, which was builders would say to a buyer, I am willing to sell you this plot of dirt and I will build you a custom home. But if my costs go up, we're going to share how much my costs have gone up. And that actually became a bit of a PR nightmare because buyers didn't like that. You know, They thought they bought the home for 400 and now they have to spend 20,000 more. So what we found is that builders had said, you know what, instead of putting the customer on the line. And instead of kind of hurting that relationship, if we start spec homes, we can wait to sell at a certain stage of construction. Mm -hmm. We now know, let's say framing is is a huge part of the cost of a home. If they wait till framing, they know how much their, their lumber pack costs. And so now there's not as much uncertainty around the cost. They have more certainty around the price and they can keep the customer happy on the other end.
1: That's interesting. Do you, um, are, The, are the the home builders do they hedge that stuff like are they doing any financial hedging like you know on lumber and stuff like that to 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 try to lock that in i can't imagine i know the small guys aren't they they kind of wing it but <laughs> how does that work for those guys
0: and I, I think historically the answer has always been yes and i think there's just been a little bit more pushback on the supplier side and I haven't had a conversation recently, but I remember there was a point that, that you weren't really given much of an option to hedge. I, I don't know the inner workings of that from, from a, a supplier point of view, but I know that that has evolved as the market has changed it as well.
1: Interesting. That actually brings us, so as they build these more standard homes and, and they change the, the sales side and the, and the target of the market, that actually brings us to the other thing that you said top of mind was the millennials, right? So, mm-hmm. so tell us what we're learning about the millennials.
0: Yeah. And, and I want to start with something that I probably shouldn't even say, but I'm going to say it anyways, which is I find that people, <laughs> it's, no, this is going to be, this is going to come off so wrong, but I'm going to say it. Um, I have found people say, and, and no offense if you're one of these people, but I have had people say, you know, look at the number of home sales because we have good home sales. There is not any kind of affordability challenge in today's market. And if you ask me, that's just about the most elitist thing that can come out of someone's mouth. Because that's coming from someone who has a good income, who maybe had already owned a home, they have some equity, they can take advantage of low interest rates, they didn't lose their job during the pandemic. Like, I think that is a a narrow scope of maybe higher educated, higher income individuals that are saying that, and they're saying, well, I can still buy a home. What are you talking about? And our data from the millennials, and by the way, the way, so we classify millennials, I know it depends on the source, between 1980 and 2000. And I don't ever, since since the launch of my millennial survey, I don't want only millennials that make over 100,000 or only millennials that make over 60,000. I want someone who is sitting on Facebook, they see my, my Facebook ad and they click on it. I want them to be a renter. I want them to be a stay-at-home parent. I, I really don't care who you are, what you do. I just wanna hear what you say. And of those that are renting, the number one reason that they're still renting is not because they want to rent forever, in fact, we only have seven percent of millennials that never want to own a home. It all comes down to affordability and their ability to pay, and that's either I can't afford where I want to live or I have student loans or I don't have a down payment. So we do know that there are millennials buying homes, of course, there are, but there are plenty that are seeing the market and saying, "Wow, my income maybe it's grown, but it hasn't keeping up kept up with how much prices have gone up
1: yeah, for sure and and um as rates fall and the payment is more affordable like that's what was one of the dynamics of the last it's actually probably no longer true but like you know even as home prices were climbing rates were falling and you know payments were getting more affordable but we still had the down payment problem
0: Mm -hmm. that's that's, that's absolutely it and 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 it goes back to it depends on who you are because what our survey showed is that 60 percent of millennials saved more money in 2021 than 2020 So again, if you were in a good place, you probably do have a little bit more money towards a down payment. Plus, as you know, the FHA loan limits have gone up. And so now there's a little bit of of assistance where you can do a low down payment loan. And by the way, if you're going to go talk to a new home builder, they're not going to discriminate against you being an FHA buyer, like someone who's in the existing home market who would say they're not discriminating, but we all kind of understand that they're going to take a 20% down payment or or, or an all cash offer.
1: Interesting. Do you notice in your, in the millennial data, do, is there a demographic appeal to new construction versus existing? Is it changing or is it the same percentage wise?
0: Such a good question, because that's one of the results I was looking at today. It seems, it seems that the reference is new but the purchase becomes existing and i think some of that does come down to the affordability aspect but that's changed a little bit because the spread between new and existing homes has come down a little bit and that, that'll depend on the product and you know there's a lot of other factors that go into that but um, a lot of times i think for in particular the millennials that are cost constrained not the ones that sky's the limit the ent- the, the existing home market is a very good entry-level starting point.
1: Yeah, interesting. So the spread, meaning the the new construction tends to have more amenities and is, sl- is priced slightly higher. It's a more premium product than the existing stuff. I can make sense. That's funny. I, so I've bought three homes in my life. And uh, I noticed the other day that in all three cases, the seller left used motor oil in the garage. Like that. <laughs> That's like, that's an existing home. They were there for years and years and years, you know, and then they left. And that was like, yeah. I was like, huh, I wonder what it's like to buy a, a brand new home. You know? <laughs> like, like, like yeah. oh, the buyer, he'll take care of whatever this, you know, I changed the oil in my car in, in 1972, and it's still oh sitting gosh. there in my garage. <laughs> well,
0: I'm, I'm exactly the same. I've bought two homes, and they both have been existing. And for me, I just can't, I can't handle the choices. Too many choices is, is too much for me. So I like seeing what a house looks like. I know I like knowing what the floor looks like, with the wall color, and so that's why I, I the
1: pre this. like as opposed to before it's even built.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. That's wild. And, and for me, I have I have the I have an immediacy thing, right? as opposed to like, mm. uh, like you know yes. putting this money down now and who knows is going to happen in 14 months or you know however long it's going to take to
0: come. Yes, exactly. Uh, and and I think one of the interesting things back to your question of new versus existing, I threw in a question about, would you be willing to buy a a renovation, like a house that needed some work? And I was shocked. So I wouldn't, but that's because I'm not handy. But 80% of millennials apparently are either handy or believe that someone in their family or, you know, with enough YouTube, they can, they can do it. So 80% of millennials said, yeah, they'll take a house that needs a little bit of reno, but, but with a caveat. So I'm sure you're not surprised. One of it was, yes, as long as I can get a deal, good luck. Or yes, as long as the renovations are reasonable enough you know i don't have to gut the whole house and start over but if there's a little bit that i need to do new windows you know that kind of stuff i'm willing to do it
1: that's one of the one of the um the impetus for the work that we do at altos research is when i bought my little old overpriced silicon valley house we bought it in the expensive neighborhood and the but in the the lowest price quartile And, and it was 2001 Right, two two bubbles ago, and and the Nasdaq bubble was bursting. And what 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 happened was the high end of Los Altos, the town we were in at the time, that were like two million dollars stock option homes, those evaporated. But the low end didn't go anywhere. And and so by tracking what we do is track everything in price range quartiles. So the high end of the market may be behaving differently from the low end. And then you can look at it and you can say, okay, I'm buying in the low end. A lots the same size as the next range up and so a remodel can move me up a notch but it can't move me up to the top because those are the bigger lots and so you can see that anywhere and 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 i think it sure seems to me like the the narrative for millennials and in, in is that you know real estate's been a really great investment there you know came out of the bubble burst and then their entire adult lives. It's been a really good deal to own. Rates are so low and revenue per home, like rental income goes up. And so it seems like a pretty pervasive thought that like, this is a good deal and we can go improve a home and, and and make some money on it.
0: But what's interesting too, so I agree with that. What's interesting is while it was, and I would say even before the pandemic, it was in particular a good deal because it we, we took us so long to fully recover in terms of prices compared to last cycle. There were so many scars. So you had to be someone that was willing to say, I saw my parents lose their home or I saw my parents lose their job and I don't think that will happen to me or I think I'm gonna have enough security. And so you of course had people buying homes you know before the pandemic but i think the pandemic was kind of that that powerful force that that told people you know what maybe i should get back into the market and i can get over some of those scars and and now i legitimately need a home i want a home and i'm willing to jump in and so we definitely have seen more activity as you know more activity since the start of the pandemic
1: yeah fascinating um let's shift to the two questions hey generally what do you think about like the 2022, and you know, do you see what are signals that you look for to know when, like, when this bull run ends? Mm -hmm. And do you have specifically in your data leading indicators? Like, are there are there numbers that turn in your data before the the market as a whole turns? Are there other signals like that that you can that you can point to with a correlation?
0: Sure. Okay. So starting with the forecast for next year. We're calling for growth. We're calling for growth in terms of prices, sales, and inventory, but I, uh, and
1: inventory I, growth, I
0: imagine, sorry,
1: inventory growth,
0: inventory growth. Okay. Yes. But again, think I, I'm coming at this from a new home side. So I'm going to pull up, you know, that I like my papers. So I want to pull this up so I can say everything accurately. But what we have for single family housing starts is a 5% increase in starts next year over this year. Okay. And when we had talked earlier mike we talked earlier about the lot data and we talked about the vacant developed lots another thing that we look at and kind of your idea of what can we see going forward we have lots under development and so a vacant developed lot like i said is a builder could buy it tomorrow and build a home on it lots under development is that we know something's happening they're trying to get that to a finished lot so that it can become a vacant developed lot and so for us looking at that data Tells us that there's a lot of lots in development. 14% increase compared to last year, and we believe that builders are absorbing those. Want those? Will build on those. But we're trying to um, trying to be realistic about the supply chain challenge, the labor challenge, the governmental delays, all of those different things, to not say, hey, we think it's 30% growth. We think it it will grow, but maybe not not as much as the industry would like it to grow. Uh, I wanted to layer in. We talked about our builder survey, so we asked the builders so that was our forecast and then we said to the builders what are you expecting for housing starts and the reason i like to do that is i but builders know what they have lots under control they know they know how many people they have on staff and all of that so we have 53 percent of builders which is actually lower than i would think 53 percent that think starts will be higher in 2022 than 2021 but 24 percent that think it will be the same so the majority are saying starts are the same or higher than for us to, you know, how I said, you can't forecast starts without knowing lots. I think you can't forecast sales without knowing starts. So, you know, it, it becomes this, this, this complex web, but our forecast is that sales will go higher. We have a higher number next year. We actually have 12.5% growth in new home sales. And that's on the belief that we talked earlier that some of those spec homes built this year will become available to consumers next year, Plus the 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 release of of different new communities and, and we believe community count goes higher. Last thing I'll say before I turn it back to you is that forty seven percent of builders think that contract sales will be higher. Forty seven percent think higher next year, and then it's twenty eight percent think flat. So similar thing where it's flat to higher is the expectation for both starts and for sales next year.
1: Are are these folks are they skilled at forecasting? In other words, like yeah, you know, I look at the the, the parallels the. You know the interest rate forecasters, and yeah, every time we look at interest rates, we all think, "Boy, they're really low. They must go higher." So we always forecast. Everybody forecasts they're higher, but for forty years they've been falling. Are are these are these folks? Um, are are they are, are they are they better at forecasting their own like like future?
0: So it's it's unfortunate when we have recency bias because if you were to look at what the builder thought for twenty twenty, they were wrong. And when you look at 2020, they were probably wrong. But if you thought back to a more normal year, 2017, 2018, I do think that they had a pretty good understanding of how many lots are coming online. They they had an idea of their interest list. They had an idea of who their consumer was. And so they were able to have more accurate forecasts of we believe that our, our division, because it's going to start on the division level. The division's going to know How are we going to open new communities next year? All of that good stuff. So I I do in recent memory, probably not so much, but also, by the way, I don't think economists or analysts are particularly good at doing it when the world is changing (laughs) either. So I don't want to hit them for that. But I, I do think builders also are trying to account for what they know to be supply chain challenges, because there's been really good communication recently from suppliers that are saying, hey... They've sent out letters, emails to their major clients and said, this is what's going to happen in 2022, and I want you to be able to plan accordingly. So I do think that they have better insight than most of us into what the real, how realistic is it to get X many doors for next year.
1: Right. So, okay, so, so we're looking at everything in your data says, like, there's growth this year, there's growth in sales, there's growth in production, like all of the things are growing. Same thing is in our data. Right, everything we look at says demand is high, supply is low, prices are climbing. You know there are risks that the train comes off the tracks. They're not in a, in the data yet. What are the risks that you're looking for? Like when? What? When, when do we go? Like when do we pull out our cash before everybody else yep. knows? <laughs>
0: yep. So, so a couple things from the data. One of the first early signs on a builder point of view will be cancellations. And that's gonna come mostly from surveys or conversations. And cancellations usually do not all hit at once. You start to have some people on the margin go, ooh, like I feel a little bit uncomfortable about the market. And you'll start to have builders say, huh, felt like our cancellations started to take up. And so that's probably a little bit closer to the end but, but we're always watching cancellations to us. That is I, there, I am a friend with a CEO of a home builder. And he said, that's his number one thing that he tracks every single week. Please don't tell me there's more cancellation for us. And, and I will say this goes back to our people, right. forecasting for us, we looked at last cycle and one of the earliest warning signs you could find was the buildup of quick move in inventory, which is the spec inventory that we talked about. Do builders start to have homes that aren't selling? Because now that's telling you something's going on with demand. Even if we do have this this underlying supply and demand imbalance, if QMI is building up, why are buyers not buying it for one reason or another? Another thing I would say is is going back to my conversation, or I guess my my point on millennials, is that we've seen the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest increase in builders saying they're running into qualification issues. That means, and it's not... It's not alarming. This is not me saying, hey, ring the alarm bells, but this is me saying, we're going to watch the qualification number because we know that who has bought recently have been higher income, higher down payment, excellent credit score individuals. What if we don't have an endless pool of higher income, higher credit score, higher down payment individuals? And when the market has grown up so much and now we're going into our next tier of buyers, what if they don't have as good of a credit score? What if they are struggling to qualify? So I would say that's another thing that we're watching. And then you already you already hit on it as a joke, and I think we all laugh at ourselves about interest rate forecasts, but if if we're wrong on interest rates, I know that there will be consumer shock to the monthly payment, because you talked about that. The monthly payment is favorable. You look at it. We have dirt cheap financing, but if that changes, people often will buy on that monthly payment, and that could impact it. That's what I'm looking at. What Do you, do you have anything that's like your key thing? Yeah,
1: so this is great. So the cancellations and the quick move in inventory do you have those as like a, a time series? Do you have uh, so
0: quick movement, yes? Cancellation, no.
1: Okay. So on our side, we're watching, so we watch the active stock, all the homes listed for sale. Mm-hmm. And the the leading indicators in there are uh percentage of homes on the market that have taken a price cut recently. Mm-hmm. So the rule of thumb nationally is about third, about a third. Thirty-five percent, and some markets where there's like more investors and bigger bill, like Phoenix, it's, it can be higher, like forty percent. In the hot California markets, it might be twenty-five percent. So, and 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 these are homes that get listed, and they need to take a cut. Sometimes that's strategic. Sometimes it's you know whatever bad expectations, whatever the reasons are. But a third of them, And then when a market's hot, a third of them think they overpriced, but only twenty-five percent need to cut because some of them got their offer and then 20 percent and then on the other side when the market cools now price reductions we look around as oh 40 percent of the market's taking a cut 45 percent fifth half the stock has taken a price cut because the same reason the cancellations it it, correlating to the cancellations like wow i i'm not going to get this like i got cold feet i don't have the cash i thought i had and what we saw was so you get this real consistent pattern year to year in the price reductions and, and price that you cut your prices more in the fall. You want to move the house before the summer. And then what we saw in this year, last year, price reductions never climbed in the fall because people kept buying right through the winter and then they fell. And so we were nationally at like 15% with price reductions where 35% is normal. Now only 15% have to take the price cut because people were overbidding and doing all the things. That normalized this fall it climb back up. And so in the fall that we were looking at price reductions in the 27-28% range. Normal 35, last year was 26, so we were like getting more normal, but all right. of a sudden this winter it's coming back down and so it's one of the leading indicators for us it says demand's actually picking up this winter before the holidays. And we're looking like first quarter's kind of got that, that demand baked in already. So price reductions is one that we look at, and it will be really fascinating to see if we could correlate that Mm -hmm. in, in this, you know, to those two time series uh, with your, like your quick moving inventory. The other place we'll do it is we'll watch the cohort of properties that are listed each week, the new listings. And it's a fabulous wisdom of the crowds example where the sellers and the listing agents, they know that the last house got a dozen offers and there's, you know, 40 people at the the open house. So they price it a little more aggressively. They price their listing a little more aggressively. And so we can watch the inflection point in this newly listed cohort turn very quickly and go steeper. When they're when when those sellers are adjusting. So all of a sudden, if there's nobody walking around the open home and you go to list your house, you put it at a little discount Mm -hmm. to make sure that it gets some attention. And so it shows up in that data very quickly. So those are the ones, those are some of the ones that we're looking at. And right now they look really strong for really, you know, it's like these are homes that are like just listed now. Maybe they get an offer in January. It closes in February. Or you know it's listing now, and it gets an offer in February it closes in March, and you hear about it in April, like you can see it right now, and so it's we see so much of the the beginning of the year already in that data, and uh, it'd be it'd be really fun to see if we can if we can correlate that with, for example, the q m i number that you have
0: and what you were talking about too, you talk about how your data is showing that there's a little bit of an uptick in the market now from the resale point of view. We're seeing the same thing from builders, which is and this kind of ties in a couple of thoughts. As you said, how good are builders at forecasting? Well, normally builders have seasonality that they want to forecast in. Like you said, any idea of seasonality blew up their forecast in 2020 because that's definitely not what happened. This year, seasonality did return. In particular, June and July, builders thought it was over. Like their sales really slowed down. It was a notable, notable change. Now sales have come back. It is slower than like the, the heyday, but but what they see is that The seasonal pattern is showing up, but everything is to a higher level. So you may be a little bit slower than normal, but you're higher than what the slower than normal would look like, if that makes sense. So so just overall transactions are stronger.
1: That's really, yeah. And that's exactly what we're seeing in the existing data. It's um, the peak of the, the frenzy was May, and then it backed off. And we can see it in a bunch of the numbers backing off a little bit later in the year. I hope we froze for a second. Now there we are. Okay. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So, so peak, um, you know, we yeah. saw peak in May and then back off like June, July. Definitely looked like it was normalizing to us. And now it's accelerating again.
0: Yep. Yeah, exactly.
1: Fascinating. Okay. So much stuff. What's, what are you excited about right now? Or is there something that you want to that you're looking forward to or something else you'll want to make sure we hear about?
0: Sure. So it's probably something like you may have seen on Twitter today. We had a big release of new data this morning, not from the starts, but from, from Zonda's point of view. And it's something that that we've really struggled with because if you look at, so, so it's called the Zonda affordability ratio, the czar. And we created this because when we talk to builders and we talk about affordability, they will say our locals a local person in Phoenix is struggling with affordability or out of towners or people from LA think it is dirt cheap here. And it's interesting because the post office change of address data isn't capturing as large of an effect as what we hear on the ground. And I think it's partly because inventory is so low that you don't need that many people to move to drive up home prices and to, to really influence the price of a market and to be a, a notable factor. And so what our, our czar does is we look at, so a normal measure for affordability is looking at the percent of households that can afford the median priced home. And the problem with that in our, in our belief, based on our conversations with builders, is that it's not capturing the LA income. It's not because when someone moves, their income often stays with their employer. So if, if you moved to Nevada. You live in California, your income is likely going to be coded in California versus Nevada, and so that's making it hard to look at incomes even though you've moved. So, anyways, a long way to say we've created the czar to account for what we think is more of the true demand in the market, where in some areas affordability has actually gone up based on compared to where it was before. You know, from from the data. In some markets, affordability has come down because you do have some people that have moved, and not everyone's moving because they want to buy a huge mansion in a lower-priced area. Some people are moving for other reasons, family reasons, whatever it may be. So, so we're not biased one way or another. It's not only to push up affordability; it's just trying to get a better sense of it. So, I would say that's something I'm, I'm very proud of, and and I we shared today, and I've had a lot of messages from builders that have just said this actually feels intuitive to me because we do have so many people from out of out of metro or out of state.
1: Right, and and in the last. 20, 18, 20 months, that was certainly accelerated. We called them the Zoom towns. My friend Connor sent from Bloomberg, called them the Zoom towns. Um, do you think that Zoom town uh, phenomenon where you know, we're moving remote, we're moving from LA to Boise, um, is that one of the things that we've observed over the years is that every year available inventory of existing, the existing stock declines. The available inventory declines. And it's generally, as rates have been low, it's been a really good deal to buy my next house and keep my first one for investment property. Mm-hmm. And so I have, uh, so now I have two properties and we've taken like 8 million homes out of the resale stock and turned it into rental stock over the last decade. And so each year we can see that the next year's inventory lower. And do you think that the the change of address info maybe didn't reflect the migration it, as much because a lot of what was happening is just, I'm not, sell, I'm not actually moving. I'm, I'm buying a
0: second house. I think that's a very interesting question. And I, so if you were going to hold on to your existing home, you probably still do like a forward address though. Yeah, I, I depending, depending on where you're feeling is there.
1: the main home.
0: Yes, yes. So I think there could be something, there's got to be something there because we're hearing it directly from the builders. We're seeing it directly in their data. So this is somehow those two things are not not coming together. And and it could be what you're talking about is maybe it's the existence of multiple homes, of second homes that that could be. So that could be your point too, is that if you hold one home, you buy a second home, maybe you're not going to change your address to your second home, but you're still going to spend a lot of time there. So yeah, yeah, I think there are a lot of factors that could play into it, but I think that's a good way to think about it.
1: Yeah, and we noticed, for example, that, that Boise, one of the boom Zoom towns had, when we looked at, for example, our price reductions number, Boise's normally in the 40% range. Boise was down at like 7% in April or May. Nobody, because you're coming in, as you point out, you're coming in from LA, you're like, I'll pay whatever, doesn't matter, whatever you want. Right. And yep. and but that slowed down this fall significantly. And price reductions in Boise got back up to their normal forty percent range again. Ah. Significantly so what that says to me is significantly fewer Zoom town migrations and or possibly, you know, their their there was a price limit where all of a sudden it didn't feel right anymore. And buyers got sensitive and the locals were like, well, let's see what these, you know, idiots from LA are going to pay. And, and all of a sudden they say, like, Oh, there's a limit. Maybe there's something like that
0: happening. That's, that's so important. I think under discussed is when you think about even if you just use, and I know we're making this California focus and that's, that's not the point, but if, if you are thinking about Orange County to Riverside, So a lot of people moved from just more coastal California to inland California, but prices in inland California have gone up so much that to your point, is there still that value play? Do people before you were moving because you were saving two hundred thousand dollars and you got more home? What if it's only fifty thousand dollars now? Do you want the commute? Do you want to do you want to change your lifestyle? So I do think there is a threshold. Even if you have not unlimited funds, but you know pretty sizable funds, you're still gonna weigh some equation. You're still gonna be thought like smart about your your decision of where you want to put your money
1: yeah the the arbitrage goes away right like it mm-hmm. it evaporates exactly. yeah so that's really fascinating so i i will like looking forward to seeing more on the czar the the affordability ratio is it does that tell us right now off the top of your head are there are there are there markets that look particularly affordable surprisingly affordable by that by your ratio uh.
0: Here's the problem. So I love bazaar because like I I was part of creating it, so I'm always gonna have to love it. The problem is, I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and in Cleveland there are more affordable homes than most elsewhere in the country. But I have a friend that owns a house, and she bought a house for ninety thousand dollars recently in Cleveland. But she was willing to do like a down and dirty house, like she wanted something that she didn't pay much. She wanted a low mortgage payment. I know if you want to live in a very good part of Cleveland with a good school district, close to the highway, you know, a nice size home, maybe a new home or a nice existing home. That's not fully captured in this czar. And, and that's not just my index. That's anyone's index. Okay. So what I would say is Cleveland is our most affordable market. And I do think you can get bang for your buck. And, and that's the same with a lot of areas in the Midwest, but it, but in the Midwest, in Atlanta. In um, a lot of markets, you have such a big gap between your A and your F locations that your market average gets a little bit funky, and so I, I caution that on any index. But but the Midwest is is still the most affordable across.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, okay, well, for sure. I we did some work with affordability as in retrospect with the, after the the big bubble burst, where you could. What we noticed is there is a a relationship, you know, of, of you know, the, the basic affordability be median income versus median price. And generally, median price, median income goes up. The ones that the markets that were most risky, the ones that adjusted down most were those that we could plot available inventory per capita or people per house, basically. Yeah. And what we would find is that there's a pretty linear relationship for for, like, If there, if you have fewer, more people competing per available house, price is up. It doesn't matter what the income is. And so when you could look at like Vegas started to get out of whack when, when the inventory per capita started climbing and then the prices now is getting expensive, but the inventory per capita was, was super high. And so in retrospect, you go, that's the one where affordability matters. You're in Palo Alto. It's a city of whatever seventy thousand people, and there's fourteen homes for sale. It doesn't have to be affordable to the median income. It's for fourteen people, like that's it. And so it can be forever unaffordable in a, in a place like Palo Alto. But when and so one of the things I notice now though is because inventory is so low, inventory everywhere in the country. Vegas looks you know now with inventory like the Bay Area did ten years ago. Like it's and so inventory on that on that old scale is is like everything inventory per capita is is lower so yeah it was it was like you know the question is when is affordability a signal of the market mm-hmm. maybe going to fall and yes. so by looking at inventory per capita that was how we were able to discern it
0: so you brought up a couple really big points there so when we look at the payment to income, and you used Northern California as your example, we also, and this is not just our index, it's a lot of different or affordability numbers, we know that there are a lot of people that have shares or that have supplemental income that's not getting captured in their income. And so in those areas, you had talked about earlier up in, the, in Northern California, I think you were talking about in the past, like last cycle, but you talked about how a lot of it was people that were able to cash out something from, from their stocks and they were able to purchase homes. That's going to make those markets look worse, an affordability index, because income doesn't capture wealth. And so we, we have to be acknowledge those limitations. I think those limitations are there. And I think the second point which you made is that when does affordability show an inflection point? So I started by telling you in our index, the Midwest is the most affordable, but what I didn't tell you is that when we talk to builders and we look at our survey data, buyers in the Midwest are the most cautious. They are the most afraid of buying at the top. They feel like they they have the most hesitancy, and that's because the Midwest is now expensive relative to the Midwest. Midwest is cheap to us. Midwest is not cheap like it was in the past to the Midwest. So I think that becomes this whole different layer because yes, it looks like that, but perception is geez, prices have gone up fifteen percent. Prices don't go up fifteen percent in Cleveland.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. And therefore, even though they're they are more affordable relatively nationally, there's yeah. actually some risk there yeah. because people are sensitive to yeah. price changes.
0: Wow. Exactly. That's really, the that's really neat. It's different. By markets, you talk about the inflection point. I just think it's going to be because in, in those cases, there's a way higher affordability ratio than where you're located. But I don't think your market's at an inflection point. We're not seeing it in the data, at least from the builders, but maybe in some of the areas. I, I don't think the Midwest is at an inflection point now, but I do know that there's more heightened consumer jitteriness than you would see in other areas right now.
1: Fascinating. That's really, really neat. Okay, let's let's bring it to a close. So 2022. No, like there's some risks out there, but as of right now, we're, we're train is on the tracks for the year.
0: I love that you said as of right now, based on what we know today. Yes, if interest rates rise only modestly, yes.
1: Yeah, great. So, okay, where can people go to connect with you or follow you on the social and and find out more about Zonda?
0: Sure. So go to www.zonda.com. No,
1: that's
0: Zonda yeah. Home.
1: Zondahome.com. Uh, I am
0: on Twitter at Allie wolf Econ. And I'm very active on LinkedIn as well. So you can just look for Ali Wolf with Sonda and you'll find me there.
1: Terrific. Ali, such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for joining us on the Top of Mind podcast. I really appreciate your work and and I'm glad we've got a chance to to connect uh, conversationally and maybe uh, face-to-face sometime soon. So thank you so much. Thank you everyone for joining us on the Top of Mind podcast and stop by Altos Research or zondahome.com to get more data, more information on both what uh, both uh, Alley and we are up to. And we will see you next time right here. Thanks for listening to Top of Mind. See you again next time and be sure to click subscribe to get future episodes.